Ben Smith, I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hello people, how's it going? This is Ben, this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Welcome along to regular and new listeners alike. The podcast features a veritable plethora of some of the best and brightest and most talented photographers currently working, drawn from a variety of disciplines and backgrounds. Every fortnight, I share a chat I've had with one such individual, discussing their life, their work, their process and the various issues and challenges they currently face trying to make it in the current photographic landscape, whether they see themselves as an artist or as a jobbing professional or as a combination of the two. So for this episode, 75, I'm delighted to welcome as my guest the man with the coolest name in the business, Magnum Photos photographer Matt Black. A little bit of housekeeping before I introduce Matt properly. As always, you can support the ongoing production of this podcast by signing up for a small recurring subscription at bensmithphoto.com slash a small voice, or you can make a one-off donation. If you like the podcast, please scooch over to iTunes and leave a very brief review so that you may recommend it to other potential listeners. And if you happen to be in need of a spanking new website and you're thinking of using Squarespace for the job, let me know and I will design it, build it, copy edit your dodgy pros and show you how to manage the whole site yourself so you never have to pay anyone to do anything on it ever again. I'm very happy to say that once again this episode of the podcast is sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club, the world's first book of the month club dedicated exclusively to photo books. Each month, Charcoal works with the most respected photographers and publishers in the industry to send hand-picked books directly to your door. Whether you're a professional artist or photographer with a stock library or a novice who's just beginning to build their collection, Charcoal Book Club is an easy and affordable way to stay up to date on the most essential work in contemporary photography. The club offers free shipping to the UK, Canada and the US and members get exclusive perks such as signed copies, access to rare titles and more. This month's book, for example, is Opening by Jungjin Lee. Following up on her widely acclaimed book Everglades, published by Nasrelli Press in 2016, Jungjin Lee has created a beautiful artist book limited to 2,000 slipcase copies and featuring an accordion binding which creates two back-to-back panoramas, each measuring some 11 feet long when fully spread out. It uh, features a series of desert and mountain landscapes made in some of her favourite places in Arizona, New Mexico and Canada. And these images inspire a sense of the deep and quiet interaction between the beholder and the landscape and the physical presence of earth, stone, tree and sky. Really lovely book. Have a look at it. The really cool bit is that Charcoal are extending a very special introductory offer exclusively to small voice listeners when you sign up. Any photo book of your choice from their library for free. Go to charcoalbookclub.com and use a special code of small voice when you sign up to get a free photo book. For the latest and greatest photo books delivered to your door with free shipping and no hassles, check out the charcoalbookclub.com where they're on a mission to inform the mind and inspire the soul. Speaking of which, my guest this episode is Matt Black an associate member of Magna Photos, whose work has explored the connections between migration, poverty, agriculture and the environment in his native rural California and in southern Mexico. He has photographed over 100 communities across 44 US states for his project The Geography of Poverty. Other recent works include The Dry Land, about the impact of drought on California's agricultural communities, and The Monster in the Mountains, about the disappearance of 43 students in the southern Mexican state of Guerrero. Both of these projects, accompanied by short films, were published by The New Yorker. Matt is a contributor to the At Everyday USA Photographers Collective and has produced video pieces for MSNBC.com, Orion Magazine and The New Yorker. He's taught photography with the Foundry Photojournalism Workshops, the Eddie Adams Workshop, Like It International and the Los Angeles Centre of Photography. Anastasia Photo Gallery in New York represents his prints. He became a Magnum nominee in 2015 and an associate member in 2017. And he was named as Time's Instagram Photographer of the Year in 2014, having only started using the platform the previous year. He received the W. Eugene Smith Award in 2015. In 2016, he received the Robert F. Kennedy Journalism Award and was named a Senior Fellow at the Emerson Collective. His work has also been honoured by the Magnum Foundation Emergency Fund, the Pulitzer Centre on Crisis Reporting, the Centre for Cultural Innovation and others. 
One of my favourite photographers, this guy. Amazing talent, incredibly committed to telling the stories that concern him and a super nice bloke. Here's my chat with Matt Black. It's hard to know where to start. I think we should probably start with where you start, really, which is um, Central Valley, California. How do you describe that place to people who have a, have a more sort of a cliched view of what California you know, looks yeah. like in their mind? Well, for many years, people have called it the other California. And it's it's a bit of a cliche, but it's apt. Yeah. Um, it's kind of exactly the opposite of what the popular image of the state. Um, for instance, three of the top five poorest, what's, what are called metropolitan areas in the U.S., are there. Mm. Um, it's also, it's agricultural. It's farm fields. Um, very rural. So it has very little to do with... The Los Angeles and San Francisco and the other places that dominate people's imagination of what the state is. Mm. Well, I think it was you sort of pointed out that it's it's kind of halfway between Silicon Valley and Hollywood. So, sure. you know, it, was it partly that, that kind of dynamic that sparked your imagination, as it were? Because you've got those two kind of symbols of wealth and, and right in the middle, you've got something very different. Right. But you you grew up there. I grew up there. That's home. Yeah. You know, it's it's this when it's something that you grow up amidst and around. Oftentimes, it's hard to get the perspective until later. But the perspective of kind of um, you know not being part of the um, the narrative, I guess, or or the the myths, the mythologies of that place was definitely part of it like you know the whole idea is anything worthwhile is somewhere else right but here you are in this place were you very much aware of the poverty that you were surrounded with while you were growing up though or was that something that you kind of became aware Uh, of well you know it's, it's tough when that's the environment that you've grown up in, you know, what's normal and what isn't. It's not until later you realize that, you know, this is not normal at all, particularly in the terms of the particular place of state of California, but also the U.S. It's yeah. exceptional. Were your family in the agricultural business then? Uh, my father was an engineer and worked on some of the large irrigation projects in the region bringing the water to the farms. Uh, my mother was a school teacher. Because mm. water seems to be the main, the kind of essential problem, right? That there just Absolutely. isn't enough of the stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. So how, when did the photography start then? Was that, uh, you know, a formative thing? Yeah. So I started very young, actually, in high school. I just became interested and attracted in it. And then um, heard that the local newspaper needed um, needed a, a lab tech, someone to come in and help process film and make prints. It was my junior year in high school, and I needed a job. So I started that. And it was actually just, looking back, it was just a wonderful introduction to, you know, what I would end up doing with my life. It was, the newspaper was black and white, printed in black and white, no color. And there are several other photographers there, older photographers, who were, you know, using film on deadline, processing their film through all these kind of exotic tricks and techniques to do things quickly. And then the other interesting part of it is the the press, the press guys, um, hated R.C., Prints, resin colored prints. So they requested everything be printed on fiber. So <clears throat> that's how I learned photography. You know, Tri-X film and HC one ten developer printing on fiber on deadline. And it was a you know just the craft, like a crash course in the, both the craft of photography and the role of reporting. And communicating with photography. It's a perfect introduction. So, 
in terms of actually doing it, you were learning by observation in a way, but you were you were learning by watching what the other guys were mm-hmm. were doing. Yeah, yeah. And and then when did you start sort of trying to put it into practice? Oh, very much right then. Yeah, very much right then. I would try to you know shoot little assignments that would come through, and then also just doing my own thing and exploring photography. You studied Latin American history at That's university. Right. What drew you to that subject? I was interested in Latin America. See, I'd already worked as a photographer. So that part-time job in the newspaper eventually worked its way into a full-time job. And I did that for a couple, two, three years in order to save money to go to school. And when I started school, the question was whether or not I should study photography. And I took a few courses, it just became clear that it just wasn't for me. So, but I did, I wanted to get an education. And I was interested in Latin America, particularly because of, you know, the place I come from and the social environment I grew up in was very heavily influenced by Mexico. And I was interested in it, so I thought it'd be a great chance to do some reading, to learn more, and also learn about history and academics and so on. Mm. So, there's another, it's a great kind of preparatory step I think looking yeah back. right because you've you've kind of you know you explored Mexico and 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 you know coming back to California which you know it's all part of the same story I suppose it's all part of the same Absolutely. kind of big picture did you feel that you know photography was your kind of ticket out of, of a sort of small town life as it were it yeah was, yeah but but then it, it, you kind of went back as it were what, I did. What, why was that you know, after I graduated, I thought, okay, now, you know, I need to, to do this thing and become a, quote-unquote, photographer. And it just, I soured on it. I soured on kind of the role that you're forced into so often if you're trying to work for magazines, newspapers, which is, you know, you're basically illustrating other people's ideas. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be, you know, an author. Mm. and it just made a lot of sense for me at that point you know I just felt like if I had something to say at that point the thing that I had something to say about was where I was from so went back and started doing my doing my thing doing my projects and my stories and having that work add up over time mm. So it's true that you decided very early on to, to sort of do your own personal projects and uh, I guess something that people maybe come to, you know, later on, but, you know, you never really did, did the step of, you know, doing jobs and I did, freelancing, basically. I did a little bit during school. That's partially how I helped put myself through school, so I was doing that. But I just, you know, I got to a certain point that it's like, if I couldn't do do it on my terms, I just I didn't want to do it. Hmm. So that was the choice I made. Yeah. So let's um, we've got to talk about geography of poverty. Obviously, how did it come about? Really, initially. So it's definitely an outgrowth of the work I've been doing in California, and the project actually started in California. And. A little bit of background on that in that it was at the same time I had changed from shooting film to digital. I shot film up very, very late, probably 2012, 2013 was the last film. I was shooting film up until that point. And then when I switched to digital, I thought, you know, I should really take this as an occasion to step back, reassess how can I use these different tools, particularly digitally publishing, to tell a a different kind of story. And the thing that struck me right away with digital was this idea of geomapping or geotagging the pictures, actually affixing pictures to a map. And I thought that was really interesting. So I kind of toyed with that for a few months. And it just came to me the idea that, you know, you could actually map certain things through photography by using that this digital work so that's what I started doing I started mapping communities in California in the Central Valley based on their poverty rates 
and um, you know start to build out this this map. And, and do you remember the point at which you kind of realized that it had to then be expanded because you ended up, yeah. you know, embarking on what I read described as possibly the biggest uh, photojournalistic project of all time, <laughs> something along those lines. And I, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I wouldn't dispute that. But, um, yeah, was that an obvious thing for you? Well, there's a couple of different factors in that. But, well, one of them is kind of interesting in that I become increasingly dissatisfied kind of with the way that um, poverty is reported upon and that I had been doing myself too for many years in California, which is, you know, you go to a certain community, you immerse yourself in that community, you go as in-depth as possible, and then you present your story. And I started feeling like, you know, one of the unintended consequences of that, working in that way, is that you're implying that, okay, if you're concerned about poverty, this is the place, this one place is the place you need to go. And contributing to this idea that poverty is, unintentionally contributing perhaps, but contributing to this idea that poverty is an anomaly, right? Something that happens on the fringes, on the edges. And I just, I think that's wrong. Poverty is in fact something that's deeply woven into the American story, the American reality. The problem is it's not part of the narrative. Again, not part of these mythologies of you know the USA being some kind of exceptional country, a land of opportunity and so on. It's just not the case. And fundamentally that's kind of what this work has evolved into is like if if poverty is in fact so widespread, if these communities are, you know, everywhere, all across the map, then we need to reassess these mythologies what America actually is, what the American experience actually is. So, like, how much of it, you know, the concept and, and, and the way that you were going to do it, did you already have kind of figured out in your head, and how, how much of it just came about, you know, as the process went along? So I'd been doing it for a little over a year in California only, and that actually it managed to kind of gather some attention and so on. It was clear that that was the next step. Um, and then since then I've done things that aren't necessarily in the kind of road trip um, way of doing this the the entirety of the project has not been these trips there's Mm. been um, stories uh, Flint, Michigan was one I just finished some work in Puerto Rico that's also part of the project and when I get back there's several stories I'm looking at um, in that way in terms of the traveling the country and seeing all four corners of the country and so on, that's more or less complete. I've done that. Mm. Um, what were your objectives? Did you have some specific objectives in mind? What were you trying to achieve? Well, again, the objective is to kind of push back on this idea of you know America being you know, the land of milk and honey, mm. when I know from my personal experience and suspected was the case in other parts of the country. Um, was to explore that out. So they, they basically they, they created a a kind of app, or they created a kind of online thing, especially for the project, which obviously people can still go go to now. You know, the, my listeners who may, maybe aren't necessarily familiar with the project can go, go and have a have a look at it. But um, in the process of doing it, were any of your preconceived ideas? challenged or were they were they merely reinforced really in terms of what you kind of found as you went around the states reinforced double right it was kind of worse than you might have thought in a way was it Mm. yeah when i first started so i put together a a route that i wanted to take and um you know there's certain criteria that i've built up over time around the project which is um, the communities I photograph in have to be what's known as a poverty area. It's actually a designation that the Census Bureau applies, which means it has a poverty rate of above 20%. More than one in five people in that community are poor. And I didn't know when I started looking if you could actually cross the country in a reasonable route by only visiting these communities. 
And in fact, I was able to on that first trip. It almost felt like the root in and of itself said something pretty profound, right, before the photography even started. Since then, that concern is just no longer a concern at all. The, the, the prevalence of these communities is mind-blowing, mm. how many there are across all regions and across all races and ethnicities and across all geographies, histories, industrial, rural, urban, across the board. I'm thinking because I, I, I'm actually doing something, you know, on a, on a similar uh, theme here in London, actually. But um, I was wondering about whether you had any qualms about making it very explicitly about poverty. In other words, I've been thinking to myself, how how explicit do I want to be or do I want to be slightly sort of subtle about it? You know, do I want to bang people over the head or do I want to be a little bit more oblique about it did you question that yourself or were you very sure from the start that you wanted to just be totally direct i think uh, well in my case and given the you know what i'm trying to do with it there's no sense beating around the bush that's fundamentally that's what it's about um but again you know uh, i recognize it's a loaded word and it's particularly loaded in America because of these mythologies, right? The land of opportunity and everyone's supposed to bootstrap themselves out of poverty and all these other cliches we like to toss around. But in another way, that's really what the project is trying to deal with is the psychology of that, right? And what that does to people's um, sense of themselves, sense of importance, sense of a community, and so on. And when all pressures around them, everything they've been taught to learn or to know about their country is contrary to their own lived experience. Mm. So I just feel like it's important just to, you know, um, clearly and forcefully. Um, and I take on this this subject. Yeah, I suppose kind of I'm bound to raise the issue of the Trump presidency because in a way that that must have really brought the whole subject back to the fore in a way, um, in the sense that you know clearly things are, for those kind of people are, are going to get worse under his presidency. At least I would assume so. Um, you know, do you think about that much? Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Has that given it an, an extra kind of poignancy in a way? Well, you know, this this is nothing new. You know, I mean, what I'm photographing is nothing new. It's something that's been there throughout history in America. The problem, again, the central problem is the ideologies behind it and these myths we're talking about. But, you know, these communities were suffering, you know, before. I started the project in 2014 under the Obama administration. This is not about party. This is not a partisan um, argument that I'm trying to engage in, something bigger than that. But in terms of inequality and the forces driving inequality, we're seeing it to a degree now that it's just, yes, it's over the top. Mm. And and people's kind of attitude towards that inequality. There's a kind of callousness about Trump that I find kind of, you know, I guess everyone finds disturbing. And, and yeah, <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, you're right. It's, it's, it, it's a timeless issue. It's the kind of poverty that, as you say, it's kind of unaffected almost by by these kind of partisan issues because it's just exists underneath all of that in a way. But um, I don't think we shouldn't be at all complacent about the real things that are being done now. You know, in terms of this recent the tax bill, that's you know, it's just going to send the, the that divide between the you know the one percenters and everyone else to the stratosphere. 
They're talking about doing away with the food stamps program. They're talking about cutting Medicare. They're talking about some very serious mm. things. Um, but, you know, again, this, the, the work I'm trying to produce, I think, is something that deals with something much broader than XYZ law or XYZ change. It's still fundamentally about this, trying to challenge this mythology of what America is and how America views itself. And that would still would be going on regardless of who's in charge or who's in the White House. Right, yeah, understood, yeah. So how pleased were you with the kind of final result, as it were? I mean, obviously, there's always kind of frustrations, but... Um, did did you feel kind of that you'd succeeded in your in your kind of aims, as it were, with it? Oh, with the project. Yeah. Oh, it's not at all finished. Right. Okay. Yeah. But as things stand, as it were, I mean, what you know, what have you learned in the process, either photographically or or otherwise, that you're kind of thinking about taking forward, as it were? Hmm. Can you think of anything in particular? Hmm. No, I guess to an extent I'm a little um, excited by the idea of of um, interpretation. Mm. I think, you know, a lot of my work before in California and in New Mexico was um, much more, this is the wrong word to use, but much more purely, that's again the wrong word documentary observational I guess is the right word um, showing certain things that I felt were key and illustrating various uh, aspects of life you know this side this side that side the other whereas I think this just given the what I'm trying to get at has pushed me a little bit more in the direction of interpreting. Um, and that's, that's exciting. That's good. I feel that, I feel that's an important, um, it's an important thing that photography can do. And I'm glad this, this work is going to help expand that for me. You've experimented with video to some extent as well. Is that, what does that kind of bring that the photography can't provide, as it were. Hmm. Well, it's narrative, or it can be narrative. I started with video actually making short movies, um, some in California, also in Mexico. I did a short film in Guerrero about the disappearance of the um, students a few mm. years ago. For this project, I've used video a little bit differently, and then they're more... Um, kind of moving stills. Um, I don't know. I think video is, can, can be useful. I think it's hard. It's much harder to, um, unless you're fully embracing the kind of narrative filmmaking approach, much harder to create something in video that's truly going to last as opposed to a photograph. Mm. Um, but... Yeah, I don't think there's there's not any rules. If I see something that strikes me as a video, mm. has potential video, I'll do it. I mean, just watching a couple of the ones that you've done, I suppose it gives an opportunity to to give a voice to to the people that you're photographing. I mean, you know, something very simple like you know a slideshow of your images, but then there's some voiceover, you know, yeah. where you've done interviews and stuff, and that's that's incredibly simple, but also very effective. Very effective, you know, when you can't do that just with stills I've always done that though I mean before video is uh, tape recording yeah cassette tapes notebooks that's always been a part of how I've worked I felt like it was very important to um, you know use these stories as a way of kind of unveiling authentic voices mm. you know I mean I've heard you talk about the importance to you of proper journalism or you know being a reporter as it were it seems almost like do you feel like that's almost old-fashioned or thought of as a kind of old-fashioned thing in photography now? I'm not, I'm not making a judgment about it. I'm just saying that there's a, there seems to be 
I move away from it. And I think you're sacrificing half of the value of what photography has to offer the mm. moment you do that. I'd agree with you, yeah. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I guess it's uh, these things kind of wax and wane, and it's, it's a difficult one to unpack, really. It's quite complicated. Um, so I might be jumping around a bit, but I, I, I don't think it matters. Um, I want to talk to you about editing and sequencing because you're here to do a workshop and it's fascinating to me. Yeah. I'm in that process right now. And uh, yeah, I do, I do the workshop at, at, at the drop of a hat, although I think maybe I'd probably want to have sh- finished shooting rather than being still in the shooting process. You know what I mean? But you know, do you have a particular process or do you have any particular kind of guidelines for yourself that help you through the editing and sequencing process to me it's just i don't see how it can be considered something that's outside of a, of a photographer's work i mean to me and that's what uh, the point the big point i'll try to drive home in this is that you are the author right you cannot turn over your work to someone else and be in that way be anything other than an illustrator, right? The editing process is key to developing the story you want to tell, the the piece of work you want to make, um, and that you are responsible for that entire process. Hmm. For me, it's very important to constantly be immersed in my work. So, for instance, when I'm on these trips... I have a rule for myself that before the end of the day, I will always look through everything from that day, at least a first pass. The following morning will be a second pass. I'll begin to make my selects. And that work, that becomes so key to me. It's like, you know, you're building a, even if the images are not good, and even if the images are not going to make it in anything final, I like to think of it as like a scaffolding, right? You're starting to construct the scaffolding based on based on these pictures so that's what we'll talk about but again to me the key again is authorship right a writer would never turn over his notebook to an editor and say here write my piece for me so why should a photographer be anything sure, different sure sure and I guess with sort of yeah I mean you, you, yeah, you might be thinking in terms of magazine spreads and that kind of thing but I guess for long term projects it's more likely that the photographer's going to take charge, but not everyone knows even where to start. I mean, I, I guess what I've come to understand, what we talk about quite a bit on the podcast, is that, that the editing and sequencing is every bit as important as the actual shooting, you know, if not even maybe more so, but it's, it's you know, it's equally important. Um, but how did you learn? Did you just do it from trial and error or is it just very instinctive or did someone actually kind of guide you through the process? No, not at all. No, it's just like, you know, which, which pictures are you going to claim authorship over? And which picture is the one that says you want to say and which two pictures together say it better? Right. And um, so on. Yeah. To me, it's just part and parcel of the whole authorship in photography question. Mm. Yeah. No, just but within that simple uh, kind of equation, there's a, lot of complex, there's a lot of complexity, kind of hidden complexity. Sure. And uh, lots of weird kind of decisions that you have to make. I guess when you're shooting color with sequencing, especially, you, you know, color is sometimes a little tool that you can, it's one of the tools in the, in the toolbox that you can play with in order to put things together. You don't, you don't have that option with right. black and white. So you've got to use other, other tricks, as it were. Do you see your pictures as single images that you're kind of fitting together? Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. Because the, the geography of poverty was very much about, it was one picture per, ultimately, obviously you shot, you know, you shot many, but it, it was one image per place, as it were. Mm-hmm. Could you give any examples of how editing or sequencing has, yeah, changed the direction of a project or, or given you a perspective that maybe you didn't have before or even sparked an idea, you know, that's sent you in a different direction? Well, pictures definitely spark an idea and you think, oh, my God, I 
this is it. I was wrong. This is this is the proper thing. Um, and absolutely, and that's what I mean about the importance of always being immersed in your work. You know, there's big part of it is just simple uh, discipline um, to be on top of your on top of your craft and on top of your work and always take the time to go and look and um, be ready to receive those ideas from your work. Right. Is there a book in the works, by the way, uh, talking of editing and sequencing? Um, this seems like a an obvious question to ask you. So I've just, I've published, um, well, from the Geography of Poverty and other projects, I've published um, catalogs and newsprint publications and so on, but I just completed, I guess, what would be considered the first kind of proper dummy of mm. my work. I was able to be home you know, this past December and January, and I took it as a real opportunity to go back through everything from the start of the project till now and begin to sequence these things and start to put stuff together um, and put together this dummy and I put a lot of thought into it along the way but never actually made something physical until now mm. so it was, it was actually very satisfying and pretty gratifying to feel like um, these thoughts I've been having just you know, abstractly, we're actually right. Right, right, right. And that um, things were coming together. Yeah. So um, what's the plan beyond the dummy? Do you have, uh, uh, you know, any uh, any idea how it's going to come to fruition? Are you going to self-publish or, you know, are you going to consider all options, as it were? You know, I mean, with this project in particular, I feel a, a really pretty profound obligation to try to reach people. Yeah. Um, and to have the work, you know, to actually do this thing that I'm saying it's about, which is, you know, kind of fundamentally challenge these preconceptions. So, you know, I don't, I don't think I can do that on my own. Right. So you'd want this, you'd want the sort of, uh, you know, like a, a, a well-established publisher, to, you know, with the kind of good distribution and all that to be behind yeah. the project yeah I want to reach as many people as possible yeah of course particularly in the US yeah of course but I suppose then the, the point might be that maybe a photo book isn't necessarily as you've already kind of explored the Instagram thing and all that it's not it's not necessarily the the best way to do that there's lots of different ways of doing that now it can be in concert for sure yeah but I think you know the book is the kind of you know it's the ultimate expression of what you're doing yeah of course so and there's no reason why people, ordinary people, shouldn't also be entitled to seeing that ultimate expression. You know, it shouldn't be something that's insular and designed for just a certain audience. No, absolutely, yeah. Does that include the, the work from Mexico, that dummy? Or that's no. just... Because you did... What happened really was that, I guess, the work in the States uh, inspired you to, to then go to Mexico. That's right. And there's a logic to that because that's where a lot of the migrant workers are from I think you've you've talked about the fact that um, you know one project tends to naturally follow another so tell me a little about how that how that kind of came about how that decision came about so in California this was in the late 90s um, I started noticing that the people in the fields were changing um, all of a sudden I was hearing languages that were not Spanish and what it turned out to be was a shift in the migration from northern and central Mexico into deep south Mexico, indigenous communities. There's a variety of them, but the large, by far the largest is a group called the Mistecs, who are from a place called the Misteca, which straddles three states, Oaxaca, Guerrero, and Puebla in the south. And I just became fascinated with that whole process of migration, why people migrate, um, particularly from a place like this. This is you know, one of the oldest civilizations in the Americas. The first people to plant and harvest corn. You know, history dates back 10,000 years. 
And overnight, I was seeing this civilization erode through migration. So when I started noticing that change, um, there were estimated 10,000 Mistecs in California. Today there's over 500,000. It's become the largest indigenous group in California, in the state. Um, and um, it's just something that just moved me very profoundly because it felt like, um, you know, here's another kind of chapter of history that could easily be ignored or forgotten or overlooked, overlooked fundamentally. Um, because no one's there to appreciate it, right? No one's there. No one's out there in the fields looking. Hmm. Um, and that's, um, you know, it's a natural role for me and my photography to do is to try to you know, address those sorts of things. Hmm. Well, you know, what, one of the things that you, you mentioned that, you know, kind of inspired you to to explore it was the question of you know how could this be an improve, improvement you know looking at, at, the, at the conditions in which these people had to live in the states like what what have they come from if this is better than that yeah. uh, so that that must have been you know one of the questions that you were keen to kind of yeah you know sometimes the simplest questions are the best yeah no definitely and lead you down a certain path so now you did a thing called The Monster in the Mountain, which was kind of part of that that project, but, right. it, but its own thing in a way. Yeah. Um, incredibly shocking story. One of those things which you can't believe, you know, wasn't on the front page of all the newspapers. And, and there's a very shocking picture uh, of a body hanging from a tree that you took, which is very jarring, you know, because it's sort of immediately obviously got a great deal of power to it so can you just explain that story and what it was about and, and then tell me about that image so I approached that project very much like I've been doing my work in California which is as a series of chapters or a series of stories that connect in certain ways and again from the start it was this idea of migration exploring migration why people make this choice so I looked at Poverty as a source of migration. I looked at the way free trade had hollowed out kind of the economies of agriculture in Mexico. And then over time, um, you know, increasingly one of the big forces driving migration is, is violence and the spillover from the drug trade. And that wasn't really the case when I started. Um, and then the clearest example of that, particularly in this region, in southern Mexico, is what happened in Guerrero with the 43 students who were um, missing, still missing, and presumed dead at this point. So it was starting from the standpoint of migration. That was the idea, and why. And then looking at it, violence as a theme, right? And that's very much where the title of that came from, which is violence as kind of an all-pervading fear and uh, anxiety and something that could come out and prey upon you, prey upon your family or prey upon your town. Um... And what happened to the students um, just fit that so perfectly. Because, you know, within the matter of hours, um, their lives went from something approaching normal to something um, leading to death. Mm. So... And what about that image? That was uh, on the way out of town. So I visited a whole string of communities that were on the edge of the this region called the Mixteca. And this is one of those things you stumble upon 
on the way out of town. Um, there were a lot of cars pulled over alongside the road. I think a few police cars, so not that many at that point. And then um, and the reason was clear. There was an unidentified body hanging from this tree. Mm. And it was a suicide or it was some kind of drug thing? or That's not clear. Unclear. Mm. But it was very public. Yeah. And and the forty three students. I mean, what are the? I mean, I'm just trying to get my head around this this because it's, it seems extraordinary. What what are the? Th- What's the story? Yeah. So they made the mistake of going to a town called Iguallan, which turns out to be the source. Of, people say of over ninety percent of the heroin that reaches the United States. It's the manufacturing center. The poppies are grown in the hills in the mountain villages brought to Iguala for processing. And basically from top to bottom, that town is just controlled by the cartels, including the mayor, political powers. And the mayor and his wife are the ones who are suspected in playing a direct role in giving the order to have these kids abducted because they are demonstrators. They're coming from a very political... Um, it's a tradition at this point. Teachers' colleges in Mexico are very left-wing. And they were staging demonstrations throughout and annoying the mayor. So no one knows exactly the sequence of events and what was involved. Um, but the presumption is that he gave the order to get rid of them. Right. When you go into these communities, what what's your approach? I mean, in terms of kind of establishing your... Uh, integrity, your credibility, those things. Um, you know, I guess this is something that a lot of us are always interested in trying to get our heads around as photographers. Is there anything you can uh, pass on, as it were? I just, you know, I, I try to be as straight as possible. Yeah. And just kind of, <laughs> based on, you know, the belief and the experiences proven that out that people can just tell if you're for real or not mm. if what you're saying sounds right does it sound true do you obviously um, care about this thing you're proposing to care about so I think it just works on that level and I think it works you know it's across culture it's across yeah people have a bullshit detector exactly and, yeah so I, I want to ask you a little bit about about your about the kind of aesthetic because um, there's a few things which I want to kind of kind of clear up in a way. You've already mentioned you started with film, and some of the images you can tell they're film they're, they're grainy they're they're black and white as are your later images, but now you're shooting digital, as you said from since about two two thousand fourteen or whatever. Mm-hmm. We don't normally get into this kind of thing on, on the podcast, but it's really interesting in, in your case, I think. You managed to get a very kind of filmy kind of look to your digital stuff. You get those lovely deep blacks. You know, what's your kind of workflow? Is it, is it something that you, have to, that you kind of had to, to give a lot of thought to, or is, is it literally just you've got to press a couple of, <clears throat> press a couple of buttons in Lightroom or whatever? Um. I might step back a little bit further than that. Yeah, please do. Okay. In this part of California, when I started photography shooting film, it's basically a desert. And when you step outside in the middle of the day and try to take a full-range photograph, you will, you will get no black and you will get no white because the entire landscape is just saturated in sunlight. And that's something I had, you know, we had to learn really early on, this dates back to the newspaper, is you had to push your film when you're shooting in that kind of light to get a full range photograph. And over time, that just became whatever you want to call it. You know, I spend like zero time thinking about this Mm. at this point. But that just became that tonality, I guess, is what it is. It just became the way a photograph should look to me. Um, including the black and white thing. The same thing applies to, you know, sometimes people ask me, why don't I shoot color? Well, I don't shoot because I don't think about it. I don't think about photography in that way. You know, I think there's a certain thing that photography should look like, you know, in my mind. And um, that's what it is. And in terms of 
<coughs> the digital, I mean, basically, yeah, when I started and experimenting around with it, I just, I was trying to reproduce this film. So I did a lot of work on T-Max 3200. And I would push it and pull it and I'd shoot it at 1200 or I'd shoot it at 32. It, all around, it's a very flexible film. And that's actually what ended up spurring this transition to digital is when Kodak killed that film. So it was a very kind of desperate attempt to continue photography through digital. And yeah, it's basically trying to uh, emulate that, that look, I guess. You know, it's more than just the film or the sensor or the processing or whatever. It's the certain kind of light that you take pictures in. I've always loved bad light. Mm. You know, what's called bad light. Most of my pictures are taken, you know, right in the middle of the day. Um, and it's kind of, you know, again, push back on this conception of what, what's beautiful and what's not and what's photographic and what's not. Um, all those things are part of it. Did you have any sort of influences as far as, you know, back in the day when you started out, you know, with that newspaper, did you start seeking out other people's work to sort of get yourself inspired? And if so, you know, was it the Magnum kind of tradition that you that you became interested in? Because, I mean, there's there's always a little bit of, one starts to look for influences and, you know, there's a kind of Larry Towell thing going on. Uh, in your work to some extent uh, that's my interpretation of it but what are the people who you kind of think of oh uh, I mean, yeah Larry of course and lots of other magnum photographers absolutely mm. you know where I grew up was far from being an art center and this was also pre-internet of course so photography was very hard to come by and to see but a friend of mine, uh, his mother or aunt or somebody uh, had a copy of the Americans, and I just I went to visit one day and was right there on the coffee table in front of the couch. I was already interested in photography, but I had no clue about photography in that sense, and it was a revelation. And then bit by bit, you know, um, started encountering more work. Eventually encountered um, some of the Magnum photographers. The book, um, In Our Time, was a tremendous revelation to me. But, you know, I think there's definitely a point at which you have to stop looking at photography as of someone who's creating photography. There is a danger in oversaturating yourself in other people's work. And for many years, I... You know, I just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't look at photo books or I wouldn't um, really, I just wasn't interested in engaging with in photography in that way other than trying to use it in the way I was trying to use it. It's only until recently that all of a sudden I feel like I'm rediscovering um, photography as a, also not just a creator, but as an appreciator of it and beginning to, um, you know, really value other people's perspectives and other people's takes and other people's other ways of working. Mm -hmm. But, you know, to me at this point, you know, what photography is about, the only thing I care about when, you know, either when it comes to my work or other people's work is what is this person trying to say? What lies behind all this, right? That's what I respond to in work is what, what, what is... What is this person trying to say, and is it being done honestly, or is there something deceptive about it, or is there some kind of corner cutting, or is it too clever? Those are the things that influence me. It doesn't matter color, black and white, digital, conceptual, documentary. It's the spirit behind it that I really that moves me. Yeah, um, I was thinking about another thing that you said, which was about the fact that your photography reflects one thing essentially, which is your degree of connection to the thing that you're photographing. Mm. Can you maybe, you know, expand on that a little? Well, in my case, I think it's the degree of how much I feel it. 
You know, if I if I don't if I'm not feeling, you know, it. It's a horrible word to use, but if I'm not feeling the the moment I'm in, um, the pictures are not going to be there. I, I can't answer it for other people, but that's for me. That's that's what it is. Is is um, is is the thing in front of me engaging me not just on a visual level but on a um, inside level yeah what i realize you're not saying is that you're not you're not saying you can't photograph something you don't know about you're you're saying something else true no um exactly you're just saying that there are there are ways to engage with with that subject you know or that it's important to engage with that subject in you know as, as deep a level as you can even if you don't necessarily know anything about it. So, what advice would you give your twenty-year-old self, photographically speaking, or in any other way? Um, keep going. Mm. Yeah. It seems to be quite often really what it all comes down to. Yeah. In the end, it's a path, you know. And that's the thing that's. I've really grown to appreciate now about photography. It's not, you know, it's a, it's a way of engaging the world. But it means nothing without a certain commitment and without a certain discipline and without a certain um, um, seriousness. And um, But the the exciting thing is to see this path um, evolve over time, and again, you know, this idea that one project will lead to the next, and you're really you're just following things, you're following ideas, and you're following themes, and along the way, you're also developing this um, way of working or way of looking at the world, and the two things correspond and connect to each other, and there's kind of a dialogue between those two things as as you go um, but it, it's satisfying and so here you are at Magnum what did that was that something you ever would have anticipated or was that a particular goal or or are you sort of in some way surprised to to be here no in some way yeah very much surprised um, how did it happen well um I was going to backtrack on the surprise, but maybe I'll just let that stand. Okay. Um, well, no, sorry. No, it's okay. I tend to do that. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, you know, it just, my work started to get to a certain point where it was pretty clear that I could no longer do everything on my own, um, which I think is a fine way of working. And actually, if Magnum wasn't ended up being an option for me, I would be perfectly happy to continue working in that way developing relationships with you know editors and publishers and so on on your way on your own but when i started working on a broader scale particularly with this geography trip that's really kept me on the road um over so much time it just becomes impractical so the support you know that magnum can give in that way is key you know to be able to do these broader term thing so I've been really fortunate in that mm. but why surprise then surprise well I'm a country boy <laughs> right you know like country boys from the Central Valley don't get into to Magnum that kind of that not, kind of thing not typically <laughs> <laughs> well yeah I think fans of your work will, will have no doubt that you've earned your place here um, that's all I can really say about that so in terms of your, I, I like to ask this kind of question about um, income pie chart because I, I guess we're all, well, most photographers are, uh, are sort of drawing their their income from different kind of disparate places. What, what, you know, what does your pie chart look like and how would you ideally like it to be in terms of the way that you earn a living through photography? Ideally, not to like to think about it at all. <laughs> sure, and could just do my mm. do my work. Um, 
Well, the other option these days is is that maybe you don't earn the money through photography. Maybe you find another way of earning it. Sure. And I think that's a fine solution. Right. Yeah. I think that's basically what how is the proper way to look at that question is solutions. What's it what's it going to take in order for me to do this thing I want to do? And that's how I've approached it kind of from the start and being you know, willing essentially to do whatever it takes to try to accomplish these things. If that means, you know, in the old days you used to be able to roll your own film and save money that way, or to travel by bus, or to um, cut corners in other ways. I think it can get a little uh, cancerous for photographers to begin to think that those are the things that form their identity, you know? I, th- I think, the, you know, again, the only proper way really is to look at the, this as a means to an end, you know? Getting an assignment is a means to produce the work, not an end of, of itself. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think, it's, I think the, the whole idea of professional or professionalism can be extremely corrupting to, you know, the pure intent on what you actually want to accomplish with this work. Mm. Yeah, I think that, that that's definitely changed. Uh, I think I think that's probably more more the case than ever. I, I think that yeah, the way that people are thinking about these things is definitely evolving, uh, you know, perhaps by necessity, but even so. Like if you got an assignment from, you know, the New York Times magazine, would you do it or would you or would you is that just not something that you're interested in um if yes i do and i would um you just don't expect no i think the moment you're sitting about sitting and waiting for that call to come in you might as well forget it right um i do do assignments Mm. um my most recent project in puerto rico came in as an assignment um but it fit perfectly with what i was working on at the time so that's a wonderful way again to produce the work but the assignment is not the end the assignment is the means by which i can continue this right so that's almost a kind of perfect scenario in a way that yeah you're ticking all the different boxes all at once there and oftentimes that's the only way it makes sense because i mean let's face it the economics of you know, assignment photography is so miserable. Mm. Oftentimes, it's just straight up. This is not worth it to do it unless it unless it fits in with what you're doing. What do you reckon you would have done if it wasn't photography? If you hadn't been a photographer? Well, you know, it's the only thing I've ever done. Yeah, and because I started in this, you know, so young in high school really kind of without a plan B. Yeah. Sometimes it's better not to have a plan B, right? Right. So what, what, what is your kind of next step? Can you give us a, a sense of what you're working on or what, what you're planning on working on? So I'm still very much focused on finishing this work, The Geography of Poverty. Um, I've done these four trips now. I've seen pretty much all, you know, all four corners of the country, the middle too. And I just got through this process of going through everything um, and just kind of assessing, um, um, you know, how I feel about, um, not the photography per se, but the overall um, feeling of the work to date and I'm still I'm getting a little bit of clarity on that but I, I still um, um, I think you know want to continue because it's, it's felt very valuable um, you know it's here and um, I've been showing the book around the people and getting people's thoughts and just trying to make sure that you know, the way this is coming across is the way I'm actually, uh, you know, lines up with my intentions. So far, so good. But there's still much, much more that I feel 
um, needs to be done. Hmm. So over the next year, year and a half, um, that's what I'm going to be doing is, you know, attempting to round out, flesh out, sharpen up um, certain aspects of that of that work. So in terms of the book, you feel like you're still shooting to for, for that. I mean, you still shoot, you know, want to kind of add, add images to to the edit that you've got at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, but it kind of also transcends the book form because I don't necessarily feel like, I mean, the book is a, it's a iteration of the work, but it's not necessarily the only iteration. I guess I'm thinking of it in terms of an overall kind of photographic statement, you know, whether or not every picture I feel forms a part of that statement makes it into the book. I doubt it mm. actually. But just more of a comprehensive, as a living, breathing thing, group of pictures. Is this, um, does this line up with my original intent or not? Well, I look forward to it. I hope it comes out reasonably soon. Um, but yeah, I guess when, you're, when it's ready, it'll be ready. There's no point in rushing these things, is there? So thank you so much for talking. I, I've, I, it's been great to meet you. And, I appreciate uh, it. I think, you know... But, the listeners will get a lot out of it, I think. And uh, we'll, we'll look forward to seeing, you know, what comes next. But, um, yeah, good luck with this uh, this editing workshop, which, you know, I, I, I could do with being on, to be honest. And, and um, I'm sure the people on that will get a lot out of that as well. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thank Appreciate you. it. <laughs>